Hello and welcome to this episode of Criminal Justice Natters with me, Ed Johnston. Uh, today we are joined by Dean Strang, who was one of the lead defence counsel in the Stephen Avery case. We discuss, um, obviously, the Avery case, general problems within the criminal justice system, as well as a brief discussion on two of Dean's uh, recent publications, his two books. Um, so I hope you enjoy. Let's get to it. Hi, Dean. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Um, I, I know you're extremely busy, so I, I really appreciate uh, you giving us your time. Um, and unsurprisingly, we've had a number of questions in concerning uh, making a murderer, the Stephen Avery case in your career in law. Um, so we'll just jump in if that's OK with you. and We'll, we'll make a start. Um, <clears throat> how did you end up with the Avery case? How did that land on your desk? Well, I had just recently finished a stint as five years as the federal public defender in Wisconsin. Um, I had ended that five-year tenure about just about six months before I took the Avery case. And I was eager at that point, you know, going back into private practice after a five-year hiatus in public defense. I was eager to show people that I could still find a state courthouse. <laughs> I could still practice in state court as well as federal court. Um, and uh, a former partner and mentor of mine um, was Steve Glynn, who appears in Making a Murderer, especially early, uh, along with Walt Kelly. The two of them were representing Stephen Avery on his civil action seeking damages for the wrongful 1985 conviction. After Stephen was arrested and charged on the new criminal case uh, in November of 2005, he very quickly, uh, I think, was expressing the common bias of um, you know, many uh, people charged with crimes in the United States that he wanted a retained defense lawyer, not a court-appointed uh, defense lawyer. So he settled the civil case to raise money to retain uh, criminal defense counsel. And both Steve and Walt suggested me as one of the lawyers he might consider. Um, and I, I know they gave at least a couple of other names as well. But Stephen's family contacted me. I went uh, to visit him in jail. Uh, it seemed like a good fit, I think, on both ends. And uh, so that's how I got involved in February of 2006, about four months roughly after Stephen was charged. Steve Glenn and Walt Kelly also had given the Avery family Jerry Buting's name. And when I learned that, 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 was a, that was sort of a happy circumstance yeah. from my perspective because Jerry and I had collaborated before on cases and I knew our skills and interests to be complementary. So I, I suggested to Stephen, you know, why don't you think about hiring Jerry as well since you're considering it and maybe you want both of us. You know, we could we can make the money work between the two of us, so, you know, we'll 
that, that obviously was <laughs> going to reduce the, the activity yeah. of us got, but we could make that work, I thought, and that it would be, uh, you know, a good team uh, to work with Jerry. And that's ultimately what Steve and his family decided. So Jerry joined the defense yeah, about a week or 10 days, something like that after I did. Yeah. In terms of working with Jerry previously, were they on cases as as, as large as the, the Avery case, as serious as the Avery case? Well, of course, every case is large to the person accused <laughs> true. You know, or, or the person who's a victim of a crime. I, but, but in the way you're asking, I would say no, not quite. Um, and certainly not as widely followed by the media mm. or the general public. Um, Jerry and I had never been law partners. We we simply had collaborated often where, you know, he might represent the husband and I might represent the wife or, you know, yeah. boyfriend and girlfriend or something like that. I think this was the first time where we both represented, we collaborated to represent the same client. Um, and yes, I think, I can't think of a, you know, an earlier, off the top of my head, I can't think of an earlier murder case, for example, on which we had worked together. You, you said that Stephen and his family wanted to have a re retained lawyer opposed to state appointed lawyer. Could, could you tell maybe our, our viewers just the, the differences in the benefits of, of having a lawyer that, that's retained? Well, <laughs> they're, they're pretty mixed. I mean, you know, in this country, um, public defenders, you know, those who actually work for an institutional public defender often are among the most skilled defense lawyers we have. Um, and then there are other, what we describe as private bar members who routinely accept court appointments in indigent cases where for some reason the public defender's office has a conflict of interest or or can't handle a case as a matter of workload and you know among those private lawyers who accept uh indigent appointments which i think is closest to the uk system um there i would say you know the the quality is very mixed um skill level is very mixed and the caseload and therefore the available time varies greatly among that segment of the bar. Um, and But I think often the, the, the reason for the bias that so many accused express about public defenders or court appointed counsel is, you know, one, you can't pick your public defender or your court appointed counsel. You don't get unlike in the UK, you don't get to go out, hire, you know, sort of retain that person and then they work on a voucher. Rather, mm -hmm. the court or the public defender's office picks your lawyer for you. So there's a loss of control by the accused. And then I think the second reason is, you know, many uh, defendants find from bitter experience that the caseloads that public defenders or court-appointed counsel are carrying are just too high, you know, uh, too many cases. And you don't get more than 24 hours in the day just because you've got an enormous caseload. Yeah. So 
clients can end up frustrated with their inability to reach the lawyer on the phone or to have the lawyer visit in jail frequently. And so there, you know, there develops a bias in favor of retaining counsel, a bias that's really not always warranted. Again, you know, you often um, can get, you know, one of the best lawyers in your area for free uh, yeah. through the public defender's office rather than paying for somebody who may not be as skilled. But that doesn't alter the common bias um, among people charged with crimes. Okay, thank you. To, to return to the a Avery case, um, when I spoke to Jerry a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the civil suit and how Jerry believed that that um, impacted the sort of investigation and desire to pin this on Stephen. Would that be a viewpoint that you, you would share? Sure. I, I mean, yeah. absolutely. It was, it was the underpinnings of everything in the early investigative stages. It's why the local sheriff's department purported to uh, recuse itself from the investigation. That actually wasn't the reality, but it made a public show of handing the investigation off to the neighboring counties, sheriff's department. Um, and throughout the, you know, the antipathy of the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department and the local, you know, criminal punishment apparatus in that Manitowoc County was evident, you know, in, in a variety of, of ways. So, you know, that just was, that was part of the context in which the yeah. case arose and in which it was tried. Yeah, and I, I always find it interesting watching the, the documentary about how the local law enforcement did recuse itself from the investigation, yet they were the people who found the key in after, you know, however many searches of Stephen's property and then the blood in the car. When, when, when this sort of came to you, what was your first sort of thought on on that uh, the key in particular i mean that was in plain sight it was it was yeah they, they claimed it was in plain view and you know when the uh the film they had of it it had it in plain view but but as jerry and i began to go through uh the police reports that were disclosed to us you know in what's called pretrial discovery here and look at the preliminary hearing transcript that had already occurred while Stephen had a court appointed counsel. You know, as we began, as we began to acquaint ourselves factually with the case, there was a growing recognition that not just the key, you know, and not just the bones and the bone fragments in the burn pit, uh, but every significant piece of physical evidence either first was discovered by a member of the sheriff's department that purportedly had recused itself, purportedly was not involved actively in the investigation, uh, or had first been in the custody, uh, in, the, in the example of the car, which uh, at least the testimony was that a private investigator first located Teresa Halbach's car on the Avery salvage yard property. But, but who was it who went to the car and who maintained 
the perimeter around the car, it was the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department, the very people who weren't to be actively involved in the investigation itself. And that, that continued to be the pattern with, I mean, truly every piece of significant physical evidence first was discovered by or reported by or under the control of this recused sheriff's department. So it, it put the lie to what uh, the sheriff had said his department was doing in the investigation. And it raised, I think, perfectly legitimate questions about, you know, why the public had been deceived in, in this yeah. way. Yeah. Um, it, it's, I always like it in when you're watching the the documentary what struck me first of all was like it was so compelling and you know you have these feelings of you know what the hell's going on here and you kind of forget that this is true life and that somebody's life is at stake here someone's liberty is at stake here um so how did that with the sort of constant filming and almost to the viewer it it, it felt like this could be scripted television and still be compelling. How, how did you cope with, with the constant filming of almost your every move in terms of the sort of pre-trial preparation and then the trial? Well, of course I was watching real life unfold, not watching a movie. Yeah. And the, um, you know, the filming was just something that was in the background most of the time these documentarians were not the only people with a with a camera by any means in this case you know the uh, all of the seven media markets in wisconsin had television reporters and cameras there there were radio you know uh reporters there were print media reporters any number of freelancers and um you know members of the media around many of them with cameras so, you know, very quickly out of court, um, the filmmakers were, were just one more, you know, small group of people behind a lens. Um, and in court, the filming was quite unobtrusive because there was a media room uh, separate from the courtroom, but able to view the courtroom through a picture window mm -hmm. that separated the media room from the courtroom. And then the cameras in court were of the ceiling mounted surveillance type that yeah. are so familiar to all of us now, remotely controlled. Uh, so you, you really weren't aware when you were in court, especially um, of filming. You were aware in the sense that we, we of course knew this was being live streamed and it was being filmed, but you didn't have, you know, cables uh, duct taped to the to the carpet of the courtroom. You didn't have people walking around with television cameras or still cameras. You didn't have cameras on tripods. You didn't have visible microphones. So there wasn't much distraction while we were in court from the filming process. Now, there, then there were with these documentarians, the times where they filmed us uh, out of court, you know, in in an apartment, one of the apartments we had rented during the yeah. trial, for example, or, or later after the trial, 
at our respective offices. Um, and those, those um, shots in the documentary were, were not ambushes by the filmmakers. They, you know, they talked to us um, by email or phone and asked permission and, you know, scheduled and we worked out what we thought they could film without intruding into either our time and our duties to our client yeah. or into the lawyer client privilege. Uh, and they were, you know, they were quite cooperative and respectful of the fact that we had a very different role than they did as documentarians. And some of that footage, you know, was shot either well before or well after the trial and sentencing. So, um, you know, the the discomfort a lawyer feels when on, when on camera or when faced with a scrum of TV reporters when you when you come out of the courthouse or the courtroom, that goes away if you've had experience with um, widely followed cases. It goes away, or or at least it diminishes with time. Yeah. So uh, you know, I I understand why the viewer of a film, when all this you know this year and a half process gets distilled to ten or eleven hours, I understand yeah. why. Um, you know, it, it can almost seem scripted or, or unreal. And of course, its particular setting is unfamiliar to most viewers. Most people have never been to Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. Why would they? Um, but, you know, the, the experience in real time on the case was not akin to what you're describing. Okay, thank you. Um, you. You mentioned the media scrum, and one of the things that sort of really gripped me um, whilst watching the documentary was the sort of daily press conferences post-trial. And I, when, when I spoke to Jerry, I, I brought it up, and I said it was almost like, you know, uh, an American football coach or a sports coach kind of, you know, post-game going in and digesting everything that happened. And in England and Wales, that simply wouldn't happen here to have sort of daily briefings on what um on, on what had happened and i wondered if that was commonplace in the united states and jerry said it wasn't and i i wondered why why that occurred then that was it for prosecutorial gain or was there another reason behind it or well first of all jerry is exactly right that is not commonplace indeed it was a one-off in my experience, you know, I've never had that kind of press briefing daily or at all you know, mm. during a trial and don't expect to ever again. I mean, I like your analogy to the, you know, the post game comments of an American you know, football coach or, yeah. or baseball manager. But, um, you know, which is which is an apt analogy, but it, it, it really was freakishly rare here, you know, for yeah. something like that. Um, and the first and only time I've been involved in that. So your question is why do that? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, very early in, in, in fact, you know, <laughs> the day that Jerry Buting got retained uh, to join the defense team, the lead prosecutor, Ken Kratz, gave a televised press conference 
And we thought that wildly inflammatory, unfair, and uh, very harmful to, you know, the um, fairness and objectivity of a, a later potential jury. So we went to the court for sanctions on that. And, and, and indeed, we asked to have the case dismissed um, because the harm was irreparable uh, from a press conference that we thought crossed uh, ethical boundaries and simply was unfairly prejudicial. Wouldn't and couldn't have happened in the UK, you know, but here, yeah. here we've got a, a, you know, sort of a more robust um, culture of pretrial publicity. Nonetheless, there are limits even here, and we thought this had exceeded them. The judge had not surprisingly declined to dismiss the case, and he did not even enter what we would call a gag order here. He didn't formally restrain the lawyers on both sides of the case from any public comment. But informally in chambers, the judge said, I don't want to see something like this again from anybody, from, from either side at least of the lawyers, you know, you can't restrain what the victim's family might say, but, mm -hmm. but the lawyers as officers of the court, the judge made very clear, even if informally, that nothing like this better happen again. And from that point forward, um, the, the prosecution team was pretty muted, uh, other than, you know, whatever in-court arguments they were making, which is perfectly fair game, and we were similarly muted. Um, and then uh, Ed just, I think it was during jury selection actually, or it was you know, immediately before the trial proper um, was to begin, um, Ken Kratz again in chambers with us present broached to the judge um, the uh, proposition that the media and the public were clamoring for uh, updates uh, from him and that this was a case of wide public interest and he as a public official should be making some appropriate comment during the course of the trial. Moreover, he said that the spokesperson for the Hallbach family, who, who viewers of Making a Murderer know as Mike Hallbach, mm -hmm. one of Teresa's brothers, uh, Mr. Kratz announced to the judge that Mike Hallbach intended to have regular press conferences or, or make regular, maybe daily comment to the press. And so what Mr. Kratz proposed in chambers, as I recall it, uh, was that on, you know, on one day, he, Ken Kratz, would hold a press conference after court was concluded for the day and suggested the parameters of that press conference. And he wanted the court's permission, at least informally, to go ahead that way, you know, notwithstanding the judge's earlier directive that we should mm -hmm. avoid much public comment at all. Then, and then Mr. Kratz added that on, on the days when he would, was not speaking, on the alternate day, my callback would have a similar press conference. And then the day after that, back to Ken Kratz and so forth. And, you know, the judge, uh, uh, the judge's reaction, as I remember it, was, well, 
you know, you have rules of professional conduct. I, I can't tell you, you know, how to abide by those. I'm warning you that you better abide by them. But mm -hmm. under our rules of professional conduct for lawyers, there is some space for, for public comment, even during trial. Um, and so what Jerry and I decided uh, was that if, if the public through the media was going to hear the prosecutor on odd numbered days and going to hear the victim's brother on even numbered days, that we had a duty to our client um, to, to have his perspective heard too, or at least, you know, to defend the sanctity of the presumption of innocence and, and you know, ask people to withhold judgment until all the evidence was in and the jury had spoken. And so we decided, well, then we'll speak too if, if they're going to do this. So we worked it out informally with Ken Kratz uh, that, you know, what the parameters of this would be and that we actually would, would uh, share the podium and stand behind the same lectern, you mm -hmm. know, one after the other um, in the media assembly room that had been set up in the basement of the courthouse. And, um, you know, we agreed that none of us would comment prospectively on evidence still to be heard, but that we could explain what had happened in court that day. Yeah. If, if it was unclear to the media or their, therefore to the public. And Mike Holbach largely agreed, you know, to live within the same informal parameters. And so that's the way it went forward. And I think, you know, on one day, uh, Ken Kratz and Mike Hallbach would go first and Jerry and I would stand to the side off camera. And then when they were done, we'd take the podium and stand behind the lectern. And then the next day we'd do it in reverse order uh, through the trial. So that's how it came to be. It, it was weird. Um, yeah. And again, I'm not looking to repeat that, but I, I also think that uh, both uh, Messrs. Kratz and Hallbach, you know, conducted themselves within ethical bounds, certainly Mr. Kratz, uh, within ethical bounds, as did we during, during the course of those daily press briefings. Whether they were desirable or not, that's another yeah. question, but I didn't, I didn't see ethical hazard actually occurring with those on either the prosecution or the defense side. Okay, thank you. Um, in, in terms of the sort of fair trial rights of, of Stephen, do you think there was sort of any infringement to his right to a fair trial by not being able to allude to other potential suspects during the trial? Or do you think it was fair that that that, that sort of idea was was excluded by the court? No, the former. I think it yeah. was unfair that he was not allowed to make real uh, the, the reasonable doubts about his guilt by, you know, sort of setting them tangibly in the context of one or more others who realistically might instead have been Teresa Hallock's killer. 
Um, and I think generally in the law of English speaking countries, the alternate perpetrator um, is, you know, is viewed as relevant and admissible evidence. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the United States in general is probably more restrictive on that than Australia or Canada or uh, England or Scotland, you know, Wales, um, Ireland for that matter. Um, and Wisconsin is especially restrictive even in the United States. Uh, Wisconsin in large part because of this case. Um, so, you know, as you probably know, um, the, the, the rule in Wisconsin had been that an alternative suspect uh, can be the subject of defense inquiry and evidence if, um, you know, there was a reasonable possibility the person could have committed the crime. They were physically proximate to the scene of the crime, you know, and otherwise reasonably uh, could have committed the crime. And also one had to make some showing of possible propensity to commit that sort of offense. Um, yeah. But to those two steps, this trial judge added and the Wisconsin Court of Appeals ratified later on appeal, a third uh, evidentiary requirement, which is that the defense now has to demonstrate motive of the alternative suspect to commit the crime. And uh, that uh, presents um, a sort of preposterous uh, outcome, um, really, because take a case like this. So now the question is, you know, the defense has to make some showing of motive of the alternate suspect to murder Teresa Halbach. Well, of the seven plus billion people on this planet, absolutely nobody had a motive, had a reason to want to kill Teresa Halbach. She had given no offense to anyone, so far as I know. She'd led a blameless life, so far as I know. You know, she wasn't, in other words, uh, a drug dealer who, you know, was ripping off uh, customers. She wasn't breaking up a marriage in a love triangle. You know, she wasn't doing anything that would have given someone a motive to want to kill her. And yet somebody did kill her. Yeah. And in recognition of exactly that, um, you know, problem with motive, the prosecution in a murder case and in most criminal cases in the US is never required to prove motive. Mm -hmm. it, it's not an element of the crime the prosecution has to prove. Um, and yet here, the burden was put on the defendant of showing motive to kill Teresa Halbach, uh, even though, you know, the entire burden of proving the crime rested on the prosecution in the U.S. as in, as in the United Kingdom. So it, it, was, it was very peculiar and upside down, so far as I'm concerned, doctrinally. And it had the sort of, it has the freakish result of having the availability of an alternate suspect, Ed, turn on the character of the victim, you know, not yeah. on, on anything else that might actually be relevant to 
a crime. But in other words, a, you know, a murder victim who was up to no good or had given people reason to want them dead, you know, in that case, you might well be able to defend by proving motive of others to, to wish the decedent harm. But in the case of a blameless victim, you don't have that mm. and 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 that really i think is logically unjustifiable but that's the state of law in wisconsin and it was unfair and is that still the state of law in wisconsin today that you yeah. still would have to prove the motive yes yeah oh wow yeah that seems uh extremely uh extremely unfair especially if the prosecution <clears throat> don't have to prove the motive of the defendant either. Um, no, to, and to indeed the jury is instructed that the prosecution doesn't have to prove motive. Yeah, okay. Um, in, in terms of uh, Brendan's interview um, with the two officers um, early in season one, what, what struck me there was the lack of either defense representation or an appropriate adult. And what I think everyone can see is he's eventually coerced uh, psychologically into believing that this he he was sort of led down the line and then um, the officers just gave him the words to say effectively um, are there no protections for juvenile uh, suspects what's being interrogated in, in in the US that's more complicated um, first let me say that Brandon's experience is very common very common right. Uh, certainly was in 2006 when you know when he was um, interviewed in custody and today in in late 2020 it would remain very very common thousands of times tens of thousands of times a year it's probably still the norm actually in the United States now that said Brendan's case specifically, I think, has raised a fair bit of awareness of this problem. And it's unfairness. It's just inherent unfairness and unacceptable risk for producing a false confession. Mm -hmm. So we've seen some uh, efforts, modest, I think, but nonetheless real efforts at reform in two or three or four states You've seen legislation since 2015, really in part because of Brendan Dassey's revealed experience in that movie, yeah. where at least for very serious crimes and for children under, you know, a threshold age, yeah, 15 or 16, um, a custodial interrogation cannot go forward without either an appropriate adult you know, a guardian or parent yeah. Yeah. or counsel being present. But that is still not the uh, anywhere close to the universal rule in the United States. Uh, in fact, it's still the minority um, rule. And all I can say is there's some movement in that direction. And uh, the filmmakers of Making a Murder, I think, deserve some credit for the impetus toward some greater protection of juveniles in custodial interrogation. So when you say custodial interrogation, do you mean at the police station? Yes, typically, although in theory, one could be in custody in your own living room. 
Yeah. yeah but uh, in other words, when the police have prevented you from leaving, okay, yeah, either by formal arrest or by taking functional steps through which a reasonable person would mm -hmm. perceive himself not free to leave or to terminate the interaction with the police. Typically, my, it's at the station house, but it doesn't yeah. have to. Because my next question was going to be, well, could that rule just be circumvented by interrogating the suspect somewhere outside of the police station? But if it's the formal steps of... Uh, yeah, the question is whether you're under arrest. Yeah. Um, and that gets that gets sticky here. But but the basic idea is would a reasonable person in the suspect's position view herself as free to end the encounter and to leave? Yeah. Has there been so you know the documentary makers it sort of you know illuminated that issue of juvenile interrogation um has there been any other sort of benefits from having this documentary of this whole investigation trial sort of in the wide public eye has there been other tangible benefits to the criminal justice system to my mind yes at least if ta by tangible benefits we mean to the public Mm -hmm. at large and 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 to popular perception uh, you know how much of that is translated into actual change in the criminal justice system in the teeth of resistance by you know the institutions that have a stake in the status quo that's that's a tougher question but i i, I do think that making a murder along with a number of other well done podcasts or documentary films um, in the sort of true crime area um, have propelled or fed um, a broader conversation um, in the United States and, you know, and, and in the rest of the world that, that's had access to, you know, things like the podcast Serial or, yeah. um, you know, David Rudolph's case um, and, and the documentary made of that or the, mm -hmm. the Durst case. You know, there have been a number of, I think, pretty thoughtful, well-produced, uh, true crime depictions um, yeah. <clears throat> in the years immediately before and, and since making a murder. And, you know, I... I I don't think there's uh, any way to dispute really that there that there's a you know a current crest in the interest in true crime and in whether the criminal justice apparatus is serving the public well, serving victims, defendants, and the public more generally as it should. Um, how the legal profession is is functioning, um, you know. So I I think. All of that, to the extent it has fostered public discussion and debate, has been has been good. Um, yeah. And I will say specifically about making a murderer in in the context of the United States. I I personally uh, think that the fact that this story arose in and you know therefore was located in a rural area with everybody visible in the case and on film white 
Yeah. There's not a non-white person to be found in this. I think the coincidence of the rural setting and the fact that all of the visible actors are white has allowed this particular story to, to gain traction in our society, in, in US society, in a way that it may not have, unfortunately, had mm -hmm. protagonists been people of color or had the setting been, you know, a large city, a metropolitan area. Because I think, you know, um, had this case arisen in Chicago and, you know, with a racially and ethnically diverse cast, if you will, of, of mm -hmm. like characters, it would have been easy for much of America to deflect this as saying, well, you know, now you're talking to me about race and I, I'm not interested in, you know, I, I, I've heard all about race. And now you're talking to me about big city problems. That kind of thing doesn't happen outside big cities. So, you know, the fact of the, the setting in which this arose and the ethnicity of, of all of the actor, you know, I don't mean actors in the, no, I know, but no, all no, of yeah. the people in it, I, I, I think, you know, uh, meant that it, it explodes some of the myths of the United States and, and it, its culture. And it kind of invites people to confront these issues as universal, which they are, you know, and as not simply located in race or ethnicity or big cities, um, but that police corruption can occur anywhere. And that, you know, what's at work along with racial bias in our criminal justice system is a persistent and pervasive orientation against the impoverished, you know, against the lower socioeconomic strata uh, in this country, regardless of racial or ethnic composition of the people in those strata. So that's, to me, uh, a particularly useful accident of, you know, the story that um, unfolds in, in making a murderer. Do you think the um, the document? I, I assume you've seen the documentary, or, or have you have you not watched Once. it? <laughs> <You've seen that. laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, do, do, do you think it was well balanced in terms of both sides sort of getting a, a, a fair shake, or or do you think it it was slanted in it in its uh, in its kind of goal of what it was trying to achieve? I don't think the goal of the filmmakers was slanted. I think their goal uh, was, and you know, and, and this is visible if if one looks fairly at it, simply to present the story of what happened, and then to challenge the viewer to make what she will of it. Um, you know, to struggle with guilt or innocence, uh, to struggle with the complexity of that question or the shades of gray um, mm -hmm. inherent in that question, to struggle with whether police misconduct matters only if somebody's clearly guilty or does it matter all the time? Is it a structural problem regardless of guilt or innocence, for example? Now, 
Um, I also think that the filmmakers did a good job in distilling the prosecution case to its most important essentials and in distilling the defense case to its most important essentials. The viewer gets, you know, the theory of prosecution well, I think, and the theory of defense well. You and I, like anybody else, would have made some different editorial choices had we yeah. been the person behind the camera or the, you know, the, the person um, editing the film. Of course, of course, you know, you and I would have. Um, but it wasn't our film, it wasn't mine, it wasn't yours, it wasn't anybody else's. And I thought the filmmakers were really quite fair in trying to distill five weeks of evidence and argument, a week of jury you know, uh, selection, months of pretrial proceedings into you know, about three and a half hours of film mm -hmm. for the Avery case and then another hour or so of film on the Dassey case, which itself was a you know two week full two weeks of trial, plus a few days of jury selection. Um, so you know in that sense, I I I I really do think they they were fair. Now, one one way in which the filmmakers were hampered through no fault of their own, Ed, is that they had much more willing participation from the defense team in Avery than they did from the defense team in Dassey or from the prosecution team in either of those two cases. So, you know, I know, I know that the filmmakers invited the prosecutors repeatedly to sit on camera for interviews, to, you know, participate and um, were rejected time and again by the prosecutors. And the filmmakers can't control that no. um, and couldn't control the choices that the, the Dassey defense team made either. So, you know, to some extent, they they had to work with what they had. Yeah. When thinking of sort of wider criminal justice issues um, in terms of just what's going on with the state of play, what, what do you think, in, in your opinion, is the biggest problem within the criminal justice system in the United States? <laughs> it's a hard one to pick one. <laughs> well, any answer I give you will oversimplify. Okay. You know, and, and exclude um, in a way that's, that's distorting. But, um, let, let me say this, you know, that um, those who speak of the need for criminal justice reform or those who speak of the need for reforming the police in some fashion, you know, we're, and we're hearing a lot about both of those related calls today, are proceeding on the assumption that the criminal justice system is broken or that police, policing is broken in some way. Um, why? Because it doesn't appear, it doesn't offer the equal administration of justice. And you would only view criminal justice as broken in the United States if you think that equal administration of justice 
is its historical and core purpose. W once you realize that the entire apparatus of these institutions was set up to provide social control, largely of the impoverished and unfortunate for the benefit of the propertied and privileged, uh, then, you know, then you have to say, unfortunately, that the criminal justice system continues to do about what it was intended to do. Mm -hmm. It imprisons the poor. It, it deflects downward the life trajectories of millions of Americans who are in heavily surveilled um, communities in, in this country. And a lot of that ultimately in, in, in this country get, gets, um, you can find its roots in slavery. Um, yeah. and, and more recently in efforts to maintain white supremacy after our civil war ended with the roughly 20, 25 years of reconstruction that followed. You know, and slavery was abolished, but white supremacy was not. And the sort of white supremacist structures very quickly replicated or, or, or arose in ways that preserved the inferior social status of former slaves or people of African descent generally. And that simply remains true today. The racial disparities are enormous <clears throat> in our system. That's where they're rooted and they become quite linked to poverty. Um, which, in my view, we we underdefine. We define too narrowly. We think of poverty as being a financial state of you know impecuni impecunious sort of standing, inability to pay bills or afford decent housing. But poverty, I think, really is much broader and um, complex than that. You see a poverty of mental health. You see a poverty of education. You see a poverty of fund of general knowledge, poverty of coping skills, a lot of this tied to early childhood trauma and to, you know, generational uh, trauma and poverty in, in you know, in the, a variety of the ways in which I think it ought to be understood and defined. And so, you know, both policing as the front end institution of you know, what we call criminal justice and all of the institutions that follow it, prosecutors, offices, courts, corrections departments, you know, uh, and then uh, the supervision people who, who keep uh, former inmates or former defendants under government surveillance uh, through court ordered supervision. Um, all of these institutions in assemblage uh, really are doing today what they've always done, which is to control a disadvantaged segment of the population and surveil them um, for the for the benefit of the more moneyed or, or propertyed. Um, now, you know that sounds awfully bleak, um, and and but but to me, what that means is that calls for reform. Are, are superficial and inadequate. And it's not that we shouldn't take incremental steps. You know, that's terrific to take incremental steps and 
you probably can't blow up anything all at once to at least to good advantage. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to take incremental steps toward reforming the police or reforming the courts and electing, you know, so-called progressive prosecutors, I think we need to have a broader end in mind and, and recognize just how deeply rooted and structural uh, the problems are um, with our punishment bureaucracy from, from beginning to end. Uh, that's my view. Um, so it, it all defies, unfortunately, a very satisfactory answer. And I, I don't want to suggest that this is hopeless. Um, yeah because nothing human is hopeless in the end. Um, but I also don't want to get trapped in sort of a narrow discussion of, you know, this or that reform idea at the moment, most yeah. of which involves nibbling around the edges. Yeah, okay. I know you've um, published a couple of books over the last few years. Um, I wondered if you could uh, just take some time to explain what they're about in how that came about? Is it an interest or is it uh, something you've just recently sort of thought, oh, publish a book or? Because <laughs> it's No, no I, um, my first book came out in, in 2013 um, and was a project that I had been working on in, in earnest since 2005 and had been thinking about since the early 1990s. I'm either an amateur legal historian or, or at least a self-taught, largely self-taught mm -hmm. legal historian. Um, my, my interest really lies in uh, the experience in courts and with policing of outsiders and newcomers um, in U.S. society, especially during what we think of as the progressive era you know, roughly 1880 to 1930. I mean, that's a little, a little both earlier and later than many people would define that era, but, you know, roughly in that era. So both, both of my books, which are legal history, um, are set during the, the 1917, 1918, 1919, you know, the, the period of time in which the U.S. joins World War One. Mm -hmm. and, and the immediate aftermath of that, um, which was a, a time of um, considerable turmoil and, and repression um, implemented by U.S. courts in the name of supporting a frantic war effort. And uh, so both, both of the books cover cases that arose in that setting with outsiders in U.S. society, either because they were immigrants recent arrivals, or they were radicals, or uh, in the case of the first book, Italians, who were a, a very disfavored immigrant group at, in those years. Um, and, and they simply look at the experience of these people in those particular trials. I think the parallels are there for a reader to draw to our current war on terror, you know, yeah. to the time uh, the 21st century um, and the, the names of the disfavored groups, their identities have changed um, over the year, whether it was the Red Scare and, you know, the post-World War II uh, concern about communism and then the Vietnam War era, 
with internal dissent and new radical groups arising, uh, challenging the existing structure, civil rights movement, um, you know, so the, the groups, the outsiders, if you will, change, the, the perceived radical threats change over time, but the, the viewer is invited to, you know, sort of ask how much has changed on the mm -hmm. government side of that, especially in the operation of our, our courts and policing institutions. Okay. And, and so, so do both books cover that, that sort of 1880 to 1930 um, period, but with, with different cases um, sort of analyzed and examined? Yes, both of the actual court cases. <clears throat> the first book, the 2013 book, kind of, you know, an otherwise insignificant prosecution of uh, Italians in the city of Milwaukee in state court. And then the second book uh, concerns a much more historically significant trial. Um, it's the largest mass trial in U.S. history in our civilian courts in any event. Um, that was in federal court in Chicago, and it was the government's effort to break the industrial workers of the world, the uh, most radical and rapidly growing at that time labor union. Mm -hmm. um, and so both of them concerned specific trials, and those trials were 1917, 1918. <clears throat> but the, the broader context, of course, both of Italian immigration in two successive waves to the U.S., and in the, the labor movement, the rise of the labor movement, and especially, you know, the sort of left edge of the labor union that the IW, labor movement that the IWW represented, that's a broader context of the period of time you and I have discussed. Thanks, they both sound extremely interesting. Um, I have one final question for you, and then I can let you go. Um, I recently finished a study and, and submitted a manuscript um, just last night that looked at the defense lawyer in the modern era. And what I tried to uh, discover is how does a defense lawyer prioritize their duties? And I, I built a classic conception of the lawyer from sort of English law and a lot of American um, academic studies. And it comes to the duty of the court, Oh, sorry, the duty to the client, the duty to the court, and then the duty to the public. How would you, in your working day, prioritize that sort of hierarchy? In the same way, largely, yeah. Ed, um, duty to client first, um, duty to court in a very concrete way, you know, is is always present, and it and it you know shapes the. Um, what is fair argument? It, it, it you know, it, it shapes or, or dictates um, what we fairly can rely on or advance to the court. But then, in a broader sense, um, duty to the public, duty to the idea of liberty, duty to the idea of a free people who um, don't presuppose that the government is always correct when it accuses. Uh, don't presuppose that um, the police evidence is always reliable when it's advanced. You know, just to the, the spirit of liberty um, and to trying to keep that alive um, in a time when uh, autocrats and strongmen are increasingly appealing, even in what, you know, 
think of themselves as democratic societies, um, you know, and where we, you know, this is all of human history where we are always defining ourselves in, in contrast to some other, you know, to some unwanted, uh, unwashed other group. Um, I think, you know, the idea of humanity, a shared humanity and a shared human interest and spirit of liberty <clears throat> is the, in the broadest, you know, and the most uh, lasting duty of the defense lawyer. And we're not alone in that respect. I think journalists, um, educators, you know, there's any number of people yeah. who, who share that orientation and that duty. But yeah, duty to clients specifically, duty to the court, of course, and then playing some useful role in preserving and advancing both the humanity and the liberty of the society in which one lives um, seemed to me the work of lawyers. Thank you, Dean. That was extremely interesting, and I'm sure our viewers will, uh, will enjoy it. So I want to thank you for your time to join us on Criminal Justice Natters today and um, take care and happy holidays. Thank you so much for having me. I very much appreciate it. Thanks, Dean. Thanks, Dean. That was a really interesting talk. And uh, I really appreciate you giving up so much of your time to discuss the issues we covered. Um, I know you're exceptionally busy with both uh, your academic work and your practice. So I really want to thank you for your time. As Dean alluded to, he's published two books recently that they're both available um, now. His 2013 book, Worse Than the Devil, Anarchists, Clarence Darrow and Justice in a Time of Terror is out, as well as his second book, Keep the Wretches in Order, uh, which was published in 2019. I will pin hyperlinks to, um, to both of Dean's books in the first comments. Uh, so you can buy the book. Uh, it's still time for Santa to bring you a small gift. The books seem excellent. I want to thank everybody who tunes in to watch these videos. They're a real pleasure to do. Um, I do them in my own time and um, I thoroughly enjoy them. Um, I've had some really good feedback from you guys who have enjoyed the video. So thank you very much. Keep your comments coming and uh, please keep watching. Uh, this is our last video now for 2020. I am going to take uh, the Christmas holidays off. Uh, so I will return in early January when we um when we will be joined by Laura Narider of season two of Making a Murderer. I wish you a very um happy holidays and enjoy your Christmas break and whatever you're doing. I hope you get time to spend uh some time with your loved ones and just have a relaxing break. Thank you very much for watching. Um this is a real pleasure. Take care. Bye bye.